Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Fanalytics Podcast. Mike Lewis, Doug Battle, brought to you by the Emory Marketing Analytics Center. Doug, right out the gate, I want to hit you with a little light economic theory. Sometimes it, it, sometimes I'm in the mood for a little, uh, little more academic turn to at least start the show. You ready for that? Hit me with it, Mike. So I was looking at uh, college basketball pages on ESPN, the men's page and the women's page, and they're really different. The women's page is all about Caitlin Clark. Yeah. Angel Reese. Let me see what are the page page Bukers, uh, Cameron Brink being hailed as the Fab Four of women's college basketball. Three pictures of Caitlin Clark on the essentially the main page. Two of Angel Reese. The men's page. It's all about the teams. It's a feature of Kansas, Arizona, Arizona Duke. Yeah. Yeah. MSU, uh, a little bit of a profile about the new Georgetown coach. And it, and it struck me as like, it's, it's an interesting kind of set of editorial decisions, right? Emphasizing the stars versus emphasizing the teams and, and the brands. Right. And I, I don't know what to make of it. So it's like, I got two explanations. I will also say on the main page, the woman's sort of top teams little article is positioned exactly above the men's top team articles. So they have established a, a bit of a precedence there. Okay? Hierarchy. A hierarchy. Now, by way of background, you're too young for this. I tend to think that men's college basketball largely built ESPN. I mean, if you go back to the 1980s, that was like their main source of content. It was Dick Vitale and Duke basketball, big big Mondays with a Big Ten matchup to start and then a big east mat uh, sorry a big east and then a big 10 matchup <clears throat> but it appears that they've made an editorial decision to almost de-emphasize men's college basketball and so some of this seems to be look I, I, we got to be honest right there's a, there's always this push for more women's sports and more editorial content but on the other side of it has the nba sort of put in a position where in the transfer portal and nil where there are no stand, st stars in men's college basketball, right? Because you got to remember, the women have to stay for four years. They can't leave early. The men, they move around constantly. They leave as soon as they can. And so I find it a very strange set of circumstances, but maybe it actually makes economic sense. Yeah, it's kind of that 
NBA versus MLB approach. MLB, it's all about the Red Sox and the Yankees or the Dodgers, the Atlanta Braves, the the marquee teams. The, the emphasis is always on the team brands. Teams seem like they've been around for forever. College Men's college basketball, that's the approach. Duke, North Carolina, Arizona's been getting a lot Can- of plays. Kansas. I mean, you'll you'll hear about UCLA every year. Even you mentioned Georgetown, who hasn't been particularly relevant, but they are one of those brands that's been a, a major part of college basketball for a long time. And more so, if the MLB approach is men's college basketball, I would say the NBA approach is women's college basketball, where the focus is on this. It's about LeBron. It's about Giannis. It's about now. It's about Victor Wembanyama. It's about Luka Doncic. It's about Caitlin Clark. <laughs> it's about Angel Reese. And so the the women's college basketball taking that approach, it does make sense given that they have time to build those brands, those individual brands. Men's college basketball with the exception of, like I, I was watching Arizona last week and it was like, is that the kid from North Carolina playing? <laughs> yeah, the, so there's some kids that they build their brands, but it might be at different schools, but but not a lot of the top talents stick around. And, and obviously it's not the case with women's college basketball, potentially, I imagine someone like Kaylin Clark is out earning just about anyone in the WNBA with NIL. Could um, be wrong there. That's just okay. Hold on, let me let me tell you something. Yep. Haley Cavender, remember the Cavender twins from yep. what was? Yep. It? Yeah, but what was it before Miami? Right? It was Arizona um, State. No, it was. I think it was even like a like Cal State kind of school. Okay. Right? <laughs> or the okay. show. I, they moved to Miami. For explicitly NIL money, they then came out this last year and said they were retiring, which which was amusing and had some deals with the WWE and some other places. Well, Haley Cavender to TCU. And so what? I suspect you're happen? right. I saw it today. So I suspect that you're right that oddly the economics of this women's game are so different that it's been reported that Angel Reese was making more than a million dollars. I'm not sure how that makes economic sense, but maybe Caitlin Clark is making a million, two million dollars, and there's going to be a dramatic pay cut once they leave these established platforms and have to you know, function in the WNBA. So I yeah, think you're and- right. There may be five or ten players that are making more in the college ranks than they will make in the, in the WNBA. So I typed in the first name of a WNBA player I could think of, which was Aja Wilson for the Aces and big WNBA guy. And Aja Wilson, her annual contract is a little bit under $200,000 a year. So she's she recently signed a two-year $398,000 contract with the Aces. It seems like these college young ladies are making a lot more than that if the Cavender did you say the Cavaliers were making a mill or, or Angel Reese was making a million dollars to average like six points a game or something? All this NIL stuff is so fuzzy, right? It's, it's so dark yeah. in terms of, you know, understand what's happening, but it's been reported that they were making Angel Reese was in that million dollar range. And I assume that means Caitlin Clark is being slotted in above that. Yeah. So I think that, I think it, I mean, I think for, women athletes it's almost kind of amazing though you would think uh if you're a caitlin clark i think caitlin clark's gonna change the game in a lot of ways but you go to the nba even if you're making two hundred thousand dollars a year or whatever two hundred thousand dollars in two years i don't i don't know what a rookie contract looks like but 
you would think that those NIL deals would carry over, right? Like, are you so no longer a marketing asset when you're a professional? Okay. And so this is, this is, I think a point that I think everyone gets, but no one wants to admit. So is Angel Reese or Caitlin Clark moving product? I, I suspect that they might have the potential to do it, but I haven't seen, I haven't seen them on ads and if they are on ads, are they sort of bundled with a bunch of other celebrities, right? So what is the actual marketing appeal of the, look, Michael Jordan can move Gatorade, right? We, we get right. that. But there's a lot of these deals that probably are impossible to prove that the athlete is actually moving, moving products. So it seems like the money comes from, well, LSU's got this pile of money from their collective. They all have collectives now, right? And they're <laughs> allocating them their to their stars um i have no idea but i suspect that angel reese's marketability when she goes to the wnba absolutely plummets it, it essentially falls to falls to zero when she's the i don't know the 15th best player in the league i think caitlin clark might be kind of a unicorn in all this and that she, look she might be the top and WNBA player next year. I mean, she's a, she's an interesting player to watch. Do you agree? I agree. I think she's one where it feels organic with her. It doesn't feel like ESPN's pushing women's sports. It feels like she's a true star that's organically driving a lot of attention to her team, to women's basketball, from people like in states other than Iowa, <laughs> people in Alabama that I know, people in Georgia that I know, saying, "Hey, have you heard? Of, have you seen this Caitlin Clark girl? Did you see the highlights? What she she dropped forty four. Okay, and so beyond the the shoot, the shooting is freaky. Okay, it's yeah, great. What do you think of her personality? I, uh, to be honest, Mike, I know very little about her personality. I haven't I haven't seen. She clearly is a competitor. I can see that when I'm watching her, but I haven't seen her on TikTok. I haven't seen her express herself yeah. and the way that we see with a lot of these nil characters kids that are trying to make money she seems fully focused on the sport on the game more of a kobe bryant than a michael jordan her her workout videos are the opposite of like luka Doncic's, right <laughs> they're I, actually uh, impressive you know, is what you're saying <laughs> yeah they're they're crazy they're crazy impressive but i look i think there's always this weird political aspect to women's sports I think she's delightfully weird. So I think she ends up kind of being, and I'm, I'm, I don't mean that in a negative way, but she's sort of, she's kind of different. The facial expressions, the way she conducts herself, the intensity. Mm -hmm. And so I think she is a interesting personality from a marketing perspective that actually has the ability to, if marketed correctly, avoiding the Gronk thing where they make her out to be something, something sort of terrible. But uh, yeah, I mean, she's I, she's probably the first legitimate, uh, how do I say this, personality to come out of women's basketball, uh, perhaps perhaps ever. And I, I'm gonna, probably going to take some heat for that. Yeah, I will just say about her, she seems authentic. And that's kind of what I was touching on with the lack of a TikTok presence. Or I mean, I don't know if she has it, but I just anything I've seen from her on television, on social media has just been her being her. Her being a great basketball player, her training really hard. Her and, and so there's not that fabricated stardom <laughs> that we see nowadays with a lot of these TikTok stars coming as college athletes. 
And I appreciate that. I respect her as an athlete. I'm, I'm more likely to pay attention to her. And I think if you compare her likability to, say, the U.S. women's national team last year, I have to imagine she's a much more universally appealing figure. Um, so far. And, and so far. Yeah, so far. In spite of the fact that she's not representing the country. And so I think that there is value in her in terms of marketing. I could see her being the face, being the Gatorade spokesperson, being the subway spokesperson, carrying those torches that have been carried by Olympians, by men's professional athletes, and, and kind of being the but, female face of it. But Doug, and here's the here's the crazy thing about this and the thing that people want to ignore. Do they actually what what athletes actually move product, right? And so Caitlin can be likable. Different athletes can be likable. Yeah. Do they actually change behaviors? And so we're always going to come back to Michael Jordan. I'm sure, though, it's before you're before you were born. I'm sure you've seen enough of the videos. He had this smile, right? This kind of electric athleticism. It was it was perfect to the point where the classic tagline, right, of "Be like Mike." Yeah. Right. How many athletes really inspire that kind of be like X? And mm-hmm. it's it's a very small it's a very small group. So. And I, I think the difference in a Caitlin Clark versus say a LeBron James, who I mean it's kind of an unfair comparison because of, of the scale of LeBron's fan base. But LeBron probably has a bigger anti fandom than fandom. And that's always interesting to me with things like Nike, things like Gatorade, where a lot of half the people watching the ad are actually have a negative association with the spokesperson, with the player. And Caitlin Clark's still in a place where she doesn't have that. And so she has that in her that going in her favor. Again, I mentioned LeBron James and the human the US women's national team as well, where there's, certainly there's a negative connotation for a lot of folks. And she's still in that the second she becomes an advocate in any direction for something political, that changes. And so it'll also be interesting to follow her career and see how much she stays in, in the lane that she's in right now, or if she's if she stays in the Michael Jordan Republicans buy sneakers too kind of mindset, or if, if she if she drifts from that and because we, we don't know what she's like. We don't know what she stands for, what what's important to her. And we'll find out in the next a couple of years, I would imagine by the time she's in the WNBA or representing the U.S. at any level in, in the Olympics that I start to find those things out. Well, and then the challenge will be when she goes to the WNBA is does the coverage follow her, right? So right now... I think the, the answer is cover- yes, given that the coverage of the okay. WNBA and- already <laughs> exists more than Major League Baseball. <laughs> But what if she ends up in, and I don't know what the worst market is in the WNBA. There's right? only like but, eight of them. So, yeah. So, you know, the, the WNBA has clearly tried to build this, uh, this kind of homage to the, the Lake, the Lakers and the Celtics, right? Between the aces and the Liberty. So if she gets buried on a bad team, <clears throat> will we, will we essentially forget about her? Because <laughs> to try and keep this hype machine to try and keep the hype machine rolling, and this is going to be the challenge for a lot of women's sports, to try and keep it rolling when you're kind of trying to buy the demand, sort of buy the the community spirit or the the buy the hype rather than sort of have the fandom drive it organically. It's going to be really a fascinating thing to watch for the next three to five years. 
Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the by the fan because it's not just women's sports to me. I've seen that with like any kind of startup league, the XFL, the USFL. We've seen that with those football leagues where I've been to games and it feels like they're doing all kinds of gimmicks. They're doing they're pulling every trick out of that out of the bag trying to win over your fandom trying to buy it and even if it costs money even i mean shoot even men's college basketball at a school like georgia where i attended clearly a lot of football passion not a ton of enthusiasm regarding a sport like basketball when the teams are struggling they would give away so much free stuff to get people i mean it was a free pizza a free t-shirt a free jersey every time you walked in that stadium you were getting something for free and i was always like how much are they spending to give away like thousands of these things every single game when they play 30 games a year here and i, I think that a lot of teams uh, that aren't the nfl and that aren't the major college football or college basketball blue bloods are in that position where they are somewhat buying fandom and playing the long game, hoping it's going to pay off. I think the oh, WNBA certainly yeah, me, been in that role. Let, let me say something really aggressive. It's because the fandom's fake. I mean, yeah. the, the bottom line is the fandom, the fandom is fake, right? Fandom is that there's generations of memories and whether you saw it or you watched it on NFL films or you heard about it from your, your parents or your grandparents, and with a new expansion league, right, this is the thing. Oh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Birmingham. What was the Birmingham USFL team? Birmingham Stallions. The Stallions. Before that, we had the Birmingham Iron. The Birmingham okay. Iron were in the other league. I don't remember what it was called. It's completely fake, right? It's a manufactured community of fans. There's no tradition. The uniforms, the colors, yeah, I mean, they might be appealing, but I don't have any memories of Terry Bradshaw winning Super Bowls in the 1970s associated with that. And that's the issue with all these expansion leagues and stuff that is trying to be built from the, the ground up. It's These are generational builds, and but no one has time for a generational build anymore, right? Yeah, and no I one, think the question becomes how do you – how do you achieve that organic fandom? I think like the Oklahoma City Thunder did a relatively good job. That was that was a weird one. Not a great market. Not a, it was pretty quick. I mean, partially because they had great players. They were in the playoffs a lot of those early years with Durant, Westbrook, Harden. But they kind of it seems like they built a long term fandom really quickly. There's very right. few fa- franchises that I feel that way about. Now they were an NBA franchise, right? Right. Yeah. With coming with some star power, but I, 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 it's a point well taken. Locally here, the Atlanta United was fascinating, right? Because it was an MLS team that right out the gate had was setting attendance records. Of you, you, you talk to someone from Europe, and they're like, "What do you mean they got sixty thousand people? We don't get sixty thousand people for a soccer or a football game." And, and but again, it's. It was sort of artificial, right? They programmed in songs and chants, and and it's just about it a, a bunch kinda, of people. They kind of faked it till they made it. It was like artificial yeah. until people kept coming and kept showing up, and now they have these memories of winning a championship and have these hopes and expectations and shared experiences but, and yeah. community. But shallow, right? It's 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 only ever going to be as deep as the last as the last few years. So. Totally fair. Yeah. Okay, Doug. So moving to college football. Okay. I, I Every season in college football is fun. Let, let me give you, I, 
I'll give you my top five things that I potentially want to talk about, and you can you can choose which one we talk about, or you can choose the order or which ones we ignore. Okay, so on my mind, the Jimbo buyout. Kind of fail at your job and walk away with $75 million. It's the American Number dream. Two, yeah, it sure is. The Harbaugh suspension. He just he can still coach the team. Just can't. I guess he can go to the games via Zoom or something. Colorado one and six in conference, four and six overall. Good. Georgia, Alabama meeting again in the SEC championship. I don't understand. Can you really leave either of those teams out of the college football playoff? Can if Alabama and, loses. The thing, okay, yeah. Well, and the thing that makes that complicated is there are five undefeateds in college football. And we're going into what I think week, I guess we're going into week 11, five undefeateds. It's an interesting season. I think it's going to work itself out because you look at Michigan, Ohio State's the obvious one. They're going to play each other. Georgia and Alabama are going to play each other. and That that won't necessarily eliminate both teams. Bama potentially, I mean, both teams could potentially be eliminated just depending on the circumstances. I think Washington and Oregon, if, if I remember correctly, they'll end up playing each other again in that championship, which... Should eliminate either loser. Florida State's got the easiest path. Okay. And yet they they've, they seem vulnerable still. Okay. Now, I mean, you're a bit of a homer. You're a complete homer. But Georgia's the interesting one to me in all this because if they're not four undefeateds and Georgia loses to Alabama – I don't see how you can not let the defending champion who would have lost one game. I mean, Georgia's record is is getting to the point where it's fairly historic. Yeah. If the Bulldogs lose in the SEC championship on sort of a semi-neutral field, right? <laughs> I don't think you can leave them home. But it almost seems like you look at the college football predictor and some of the media, and it's almost like, you almost get the feeling that this is the year the Big Ten kind of pushes for two teams. No way. Okay. No way. I'm not, I, don't, I don't think the Big Ten. Um, I don't think a one-loss Ohio State or a one-loss Michigan. No way. I don't, I don't think that. I think that the scenario where Georgia okay. gets left out. Michigan loses without their head coach, who is later cleared. That's That's, that's on him. That's on okay. him for the okay. whole thing. I know Stephen A has been outspoken about Michigan. Even if they go undefeated, shouldn't be allowed in. I'm not going to speak to that. But I will say, if they lose a game, they lose a game. It's fair and square. I, th- I think the scenario where Georgia gets left out is Alabama beats Georgia in any fashion. One point, 40 points. Alabama beats Georgia. We'll say Ohio State beats Michigan. Whatever. That could go either way. We'll say, I don't know, do we put undefeated Washington, that knocks Oregon out, undefeated Florida State, and there you go, there's your four teams, Georgia's number five. So I was listening last night to a couple of guy, a couple of former Georgia players, Aaron Murray and company, uh, no Sean Marino, Tavares King, and they were saying like, yeah, I think that's probably how it should go down if, if Georgia loses. So essentially, like I said last week, Bama has almost zero repercussions so, uh, Bama- for losing to Texas. <laughs> In that scenario. So, and Georgia be out. Okay. Yeah. And I'm not saying, I, I, th- I just think that people get tied up in these theoreticals that leave out arguably the best team every year. And then 
Florida State will lose to Florida, and like a million things will happen between now and then because it's college football and crazy stuff happens, and nobody's really that good. And I was looking at ESPN's prediction for the college football rankings, and they had, I think they had Louisville number nine. Louisville almost lost to Virginia <laughs> this week. Virginia, with someone who has plenty of family members who are alumni there, I've, I've kept up with them to some degree. Not a good football team. And so the fact that Louisville's number nine, it's like, okay, the top eight teams are the teams that have a shot. And several of them are going to play each other. And I don't know. I think Georgia's going to be number one in the college football playoff this week because of what they did to Ole Miss, who was a top 10 team going into last week. And then I think they're going to, I do think they end up in a position where they can, if they beat Tennessee and Georgia Tech, as, as everyone expects them to, I think they'll be in a position like they were in 2021 where they win their number one seed, they lose their the number four or the number three but they're not going to fall out. I think that things will shake out that way, but there, there are plenty of scenarios where that doesn't happen, where they get left out. And one thing that's interesting about this Georgia team is a lot of the Georgia fans feel like, oh, we're not as good as we used to be. I've, I'm kind of one of those guys. That's not to say they can't win it all, but but the media talks about them as if the last three years in this team are the same team. So they'll say they've gone 38-1 and one in their last 39 games or something like that. And so they do have this major advantage over, say, Alabama, some of these other teams fighting for a spot or that might get left out at the end, where it's like they've played an extra 15 games in the minds of so many people, where it's like they were 15-0 and last year, and then they lose one game after going 12-0 and this year. Like, they, they shouldn't be penalized or they shouldn't be left out. It's still their championship to defend. And so it's not it's not totally objective in terms of the past. Let me make a statement that you can react to. Okay. And, and look, I understand the past is the past. A lot of these guys move on to play on Sundays, but you look at the scale of some of those victories over the last couple of years in the playoffs against Michigan and against TCU. And I can't help but think, and again, look, it, it's not even just this issue of recency bias in terms of these teams have been better. There's a lot of carryover on these teams. There's a lot of kids that were still that, that played in that sure. game last year yep. still yep. on campus. And so I can't help but think that based on what I've seen this season and last, that probably Alabama and Georgia are the two best teams in the country, and it may not actually be that close. So – I was actually about to go there, Mike, because the narrative this year, especially with the the way these teams started the season, the narrative has been that it is a down year for the SEC. And this is the year that someone else has a shot. It could be Texas. It could be Michigan's year. It could be Ohio State's year. It could be be, uh, Washington or Oregon out of the Pac-12. I mean, it's totally wide open. At one point, we were talking about USC. Shoot, at one point, we were talking about Colorado. It felt like a wide open year. And we're back in a position where you look at it, you watch these teams play late in the season, and you do get the sense that Georgia and Alabama are, are head and shoulders above everyone else. Or, or to put that differently, you get the sense that if you're Washington, you want Georgia out. And, and then you don't want to have to play Alabama. Yeah. And then you hope Alabama gets upset. And, and so you, you start to look at it through Washington's eyes, through Oregon's eyes, through Texas, through... I mean, Texas is probably the one that feels the most confident, but if I'm a Texas fan, I don't want to rematch with Alabama, and I sure sure don't want to play Georgia either. And so I think that regardless of the narrative being that this is a down year, I think both these teams are peaking at the right time. They're playing their best football late in the year. They have the most talent of anybody. Uh, that's well-documented through recruiting. And 
as much as people hate to admit it, those are probably the two best teams in college football right now. And the thought of leaving a one-loss Georgia out feels wrong based on what they've accomplished and the team that they have. With Alabama, I think everyone will feel like they dodged a bullet if they get knocked out. If Georgia beats Alabama, I think everyone there will be a huge sigh of relief amongst Georgia fans, amongst Michigan fans, amongst you know whoever's in because that's not a team you want to play in the playoffs. Not not the, with the way they've been playing, and that they will deserve to not be in because of the season they had. But everyone knows they're a top four team at this point in the season. The kind of football they're playing. Okay, fair enough. Related to talent, bringing in talent. These college football buyouts are going off the charts in terms of strangeness. Jimbo Fisher's buyout is something in the 70 millions. Who's the, sorry, name? Mike, what's my buyout if I start messing up the edits on the podcast? Less. <laughs> Mel Tucker's buyout, and, and I don't know how much of you know, Michigan State is going to try and claw back for moral turpitude or whatever they want to call it was something in that kind of range as well. And so are these standard deals for a hot coach successful at the power five level in the hundred million dollar range, it's a bad look. And, and, and this is the kind of stuff that I think continually puts pressure on the notion that the players should be reclassified as employees. At which point I think the whole house of cards outside of some elite set of schools in the SEC and the Big Ten, that it just starts to it just starts to collapse. You 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 turn the players into employees, and I think the University of Illinois is essentially finished in in college football. I don't know, but I do envy the position of these head coaches who get enormous extensions if they win and enormous buyouts if they lose quite the enviable job i mentioned earlier the american dream and it's almost to a point where if it's purely financial if we're operating as purely rational financial non-emotional creatures it's you're almost incentivized to be that coach that loses and gets paid 75 million dollars to live on the lake for the next five years or however long his contract is. That's, I mean, versus working overtime and recruiting 24-7 and never seeing your family. It's, I mean, it's kind of crazy that that's the world we live in. That's what's been negotiated by these agents. That's kind of the standard precedent to be able to hire a coach at that level, at that level for, for a school like Texas A&M, schools like Alabama, often in that position. And so I'll be, it's always fun, the coaching carousel this time of year. You start to see guys jump around and, and big splashes or, or, or kind of some questionable moves in terms of what schools hire who or whatever. But it seems like the schools that pay the big buyouts, they tend to do it over and over again. They tend to, I think about Auburn, They've done it five times, it feels like, in the last 10 years. Pay a guy a lot of money, extend him by way too much, pay his buyout, get the next guy. You're still paying the last guy's buyout by the time you sign the next guy. And so Texas A&M, I won't be shocked if they're in that position. And and to the point of NIL and the transfer portal, Texas A&M had the number one recruiting class, I think, two years ago. They beat, they beat Alabama and Georgia for a lot of kids. And I expect a lot of those kids to go to the next highest bidder um, and be back on the market as well. And so it's going to be a huge shakeup in terms of talent uh, in the SEC. 
Doug, I, my feeling is that that was actually almost what doomed Fisher is this, this, this year when he had eight, five stars and then didn't convert. That seemed to be what precipitated the downward, the downward spiral. I don't know how many of those kids are. Do you know how many of those kids are left on that roster? They've got a good bit. They've got, I watched them several times this year. Their defensive line is loaded with NFL talent. I mean, they're kind of like what Georgia used to be. It's like we envy those, the talent they have. I know Georgia wanted a lot of those guys. No, Alabama wanted a lot of those guys. Uh, a lot of good talent at receiver. I mean, they're, they're stacked. It's just they didn't get the job done. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen a team win on signing, win the national championship on signing day and become a, a complete train wreck. On, on fall Saturdays. And Georgia had those teams. That class with Justin Fields in it, highest ranked class. He was the highest ranked player in Georgia history, highest ranked class in school history. I think of all time for any school at the time. And as a fan, you felt like we're about to have a dynasty. We're about to win three or four championships. And two years later, your top guy, Fields, is gone. Top offensive lineman, Cade Mays, is gone. I mean, the top pass rusher transfers to Florida. You're kicked off the team, transfers to Florida, Brenton Cox. They, I mean, those five-star heavy classes, I'm not one to say it's not about talent, it's not about recruiting rankings. Clearly it is. You look at the teams that are in the hunt, there's a direct correlation to the recruiting success. But Georgia, for example, they've been like a top three, they've been like two or three the last couple of years in recruiting. The years when they were number one, they were not even making the playoffs. And so there, there's a balance of finding kids that want to be there, that are team players. And Texas A&M seemed to attract the kids looking for the highest bidder that were all about me guys and they got 80 of them and they were stacked but it did not translate to winning football winning culture and yeah i mean it's it's what put the nail in the coffin for jimbo fisher because not only does he have this challenge of of handling these egos but he's got these sky high expectations of winning national championships competing with alabama and it's not a sustainable method of success but financially it seems like it is well, look, it's institutionally you look you look at some of this and A and M did something very smart by leaving the old South what is it, the Big Twelve to move to the SEC first, which I think essentially catapulted them or at least temporarily moved them above Texas in terms of the local hierarchy, right? It's like, well, you can come play in the yeah. SEC, the, the top level of college football. But with Texas coming in Suddenly, look, one of the things that probably helps Georgia out, and this is a little, people could push back on this because recruiting is national, but it's hard when there's two programs in your state. And and so the Ohio States and the, the Georgias that are, are the top dogs in these big football states do have a natural advantage. Down in Florida, you, you cross that state line and suddenly Florida's fighting with Florida State in Miami and, and it's hard to maintain that that level of that level of excellence. You mentioned make the transition. You mentioned Justin Fields. Okay, Doug. So <clears throat> the class, the quarterback class. Wow, they've fallen apart, haven't they? they sure Matt have. Jones, Patriot. Zach Wilson, five touchdowns and six interceptions. His coach kind of almost just shaking his head at the fact that he keeps playing him. Trey Lance <laughs> off the field. Justin Fields injured. But in terms of touchdown to interception ratio, I love that that ratio as a stat. He actually was ahead of Trevor Lawrence. 11 touchdowns and six interceptions 
versus nine and six for Lawrence. I still think Lawrence is a legit top 10 NFL quarterback guy with maybe even more upside to that. But that class, and and I sort of go to this because I want to talk about the next year's class as well, the current class, an absolute disaster at this point, right? It's a train wreck. It seems like that might be consistent for most years where we expect to have uh, – You just shoot, you just look at the player comparisons on any draft night and they'll say, this guy, even if it's a modest one, Philip Rivers – Okay, they act like every draft has eight Philip Rivers. You'll be in the fourth round. They'll say this guy comps to Philip Rivers. This guy comps to Alex Smith, a successful you know franchise quarterback for a long time for for various franchises prior to his injury. To those are the conservative ones, and so that's kind of like the floor for everybody. And then you hear these sky high. This guy reminds me of Joe Montana. This guy reminds me of Peyton Manning. This guy reminds me of you, you hear it all night long on draft night. And so every fan base has those expectations for those guys, and the media, of course, loves to play into that. And the reality is, on any given year, there might be twenty quarterbacks in the world who are capable of playing at a acceptable level in the NFL. And there might be 10 who are capable of playing at a remarkable level. And yeah. everybody else is... And, and that's in all classes. So that's that's spanning 10 years of drafts. It, um, look, so, so then you're looking at one guy a year and, and maybe two guys a year that are serviceable. Yeah, and so, look, I look at this year's class. And I, I can't help but think about you when, as I'm watching Red Zone yesterday, <clears throat> and I'm watching the Giants... And I hear the name DeVito, Tommy DeVito, I believe. New York and, legend. Well, fighting a Illini legend. Okay. Are you listening to his parents? I, I, that's perfect. I love Tommy that. DeVito starts for the New York Giants, lives in his childhood home, lives with his parents. He doesn't have to cook meals. He comes home to mama's cooking. She makes up his bed for him. She does his laundry. He can fully focus on football. One of the great stories in the NFL this year. I remember watching the preseason and saying, hey, I, he's one of those guys, if he ever had any level of success, they would definitely make a movie about him. And I'm not saying he's going to have any level of success or that he has had, but I'm kind of, I kind of enjoy seeing him out there. It's, I, I wish more data was available, right? Because cracking the code on quarterback drafting is something I would I would almost love to devote the next couple of years to, right? It's just the data out there just it's just not good enough. It's there's not enough fine grained detail to really get in. Like I, I saw one of these, I think it was on Instagram, but this little social media post showing Joe Burrow's decision making, right? And it was like it was fairly incredible. And you don't know how much of this they're making up on the back end of he spins out of this way. He looks at this receiver. He looks at that receiver. But, you know, truly a remarkable athletic mind, at least. In contrast, right, They, I think they've gone away from the Wonder Lake and they've got some new test. And one of the things that oh, CJ Stroud took some hits on was that he didn't test well. And so the question is, what kind of test do you need to get at on-field processing of information and it seems like the nfl has nowhere has not invested in enough into finding that that test cj stroud at this point doug 15 touchdown passes two interceptions he might be having a top five or higher rookie season in the nfl 
I think that he's definitely a pro bowler this year. And I, there's talk about MVP candidacy for this guy. He's a first-year quarterback on a bad team. That is remarkable. Mm-hmm. And for a guy who uh, decision-making was the knock-on, it's like, yeah, where are they coming up with this? Because you watch him play last year at Ohio State. You watched him in the playoff last year. Decision-making was laser-fast. And so are they measuring something else is my question. And I think the answer is yes. Are they having him take the SAT and saying, well, he he or the ACT, he got an 18 on the ACT. Andrew Luck got a 32. And so this guy's a bad quarterback. You would almost imagine if they put some kind of VR headset on him and had him process, go through reads and find the open guy, he would probably score out really, really well. That's my bet because that's often what makes a difference in NFL quarterback decision making. And that's one of the things that some sort of eye tracking task. Right. Right. Because it, something's clearly, something's clearly not right. Right. And, and look, we had all this debate going into the season of CJ Stroud versus Bryce Young versus no Andy debate. Rich. No debate now. Right? Yeah. No debate now. No debate now. There was, it, it's almost strange to me. And it was at the time. And I think I, I hope that I mentioned it on the show. I know I was. I'd mentioned it in various conversations that there was less discussion about Bryce Young going number one. It was it reminded me so much of Markel Fultz in the NBA, where it was like the public kind of decided this guy's going to go number one well in advance to the draft, and all anyone ever considered was who was going to go number two. No one considered if maybe the guy that's going number two or three or four or five is better than the guy going number one from a measurable standpoint. It seemed like Stroud had the edge and clearly I think what, what the knock really was, was concerns about his decision-making and, and potentially that Ohio state quarterback bias, which we did talk about at the time. Are we, are we dismissing Stroud as a better prospect because of guys like Justin Fields or players who have had even worse careers coming out of Ohio State in that system under Ryan Day, previously Urban Meyer and Trestle before that. And I, I think that's I probably probably think there is some truth to it. I, I think that if Stroud had played at Bama, he's the number one guy. But to Will Levis's defense or Anthony Richardson, I think you say the same thing about them. But Ohio State truly had this negative impact. And it almost makes you wonder if Stroud continues to succeed, if the next semi-dual threat cannon arm kid comes out of Ohio State and doesn't test well on their mental processing tests or whatever it is that, that Stroud struggled with does he get a pass because well Stroud did too and so the, there are these biases that come into play from the the previous players out of your school and Stroud was a victim of it whereas it seemed to me like Bryce Young was a little bit of a champion or, or a victor in that sense and now, now we get to kind of see who's really, who's really the number one guy in that class. And I think if you put a poll out, a hundred percent of the votes are going to Mister CJ Stroud. Yeah, no doubt. And, and I think it's just to sum this up because I think it's I think it's important, right? That there are these couple of aspects to this, the, like these um, kind of. these biases that are built in of Ohio state quarterbacks cannot transition to the pros, maybe because the big 10 competition tends to be overrated relative to the sec competition. Perhaps I think Stroud, if I remember correctly, may have been a four star. So he may not have been as heralded as some of these other guys on the list. 
Well, F- which, Fields and Lawrence uh, had the hype train going since their senior. I mean, F- Lawrence for okay. years before that, Fields since his senior year, and I think that plays a factor as well. I think it does too because it's like it's built in that these guys have been these elite talents forever, and you hear that someone's a four-star. It's like, well, he must not have been as good as these guys at the top 11 quarterback camp or, or whatever the – whatever the meetings were when they all got together for the evaluations. So you've got these biases, but then you've also got this measurement issue where I think you said it very well. They're not measuring what they really need to measure. They've got this proxy, something like the Wonderlick that might be correlated with mental processing on the field, but it is not nearly highly correlated enough that it actually that it gets to the ability to essentially almost kind of reaction time, right? And again, I'll make a very dumb example, right? Think about the reaction times of a cat processing, processing threats. Cat can't take the SAT. And so it's a fundamentally different kind of, kind of skill set. And they seem to, again, we go back to the class of potentially – one solid starter out of these five guys who are really hyped as future pro ballers. And there's millions, Doug, there were millions of dollars in play. Now we're probably, what, about three, four years away from the first billion dollar contract extension for an NFL quarterback. So there, there's an opportunity there. There certainly is. And I, 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 Still curious to see how Bryce Young does with better talent around him or a better situation. He's clearly not cut out for the team that he's on right now, but I don't know how many quarterbacks would be having success. I said it in the preseason watching them. That's not to say I think that Bryce Young's this great NFL quarterback. I just I don't know if anyone was going to be successful in Carolina with the offensive line they have, the the weapons they have around him. Stroud, a huge surprise. Will Levis, week one, a huge surprise, came back down to earth a little bit. Still kind of wait and see on him. Anthony Richardson, a guy that got some buzz in the preseason. Every time he made a cool throw and you looked at his stat lines and they were never that good. Still the raw talent that he's been where it feels like, man, if he ever learns how to be a quarterback, he's going to be really good at quarterback. If he ever learns how to be a good quarterback. I know, I understand that sentence didn't make a lot of sense, but neither does the, the no, hype on Anthony Richardson. <laughs> so, yeah. And and then, shoot, I mean, my favorite are the guys that come out of nowhere every year. The last year was Cooper Rush or Brock Purdy. I was hoping Tommy DeVito would be one for the Giants, but it hasn't been the case so far. They had a quarterback rating of, or QBR, excuse me, quarterback rating of like 13 or something this week. But, yeah, looking ahead to next year's class, the number one guy, kind of the equivalent to Bryce Young, the guy everyone's chalked as the number one guy for years, is Caleb Williams, um, who was crying in the audio, in the crowd last week. As a Giants fan, I'm terrified of my team drafting that guy. Okay. Not because of his physical abilities or, or processing or anything, because of his abilities as a leader of men. <laughs> Because of his maturity, because it's not a guy I want to root for. Don't we reach the point where you're almost terrified of your team drafting any of these guys? Whoever they pick, it's probably the wrong one. (laughs) I mean that there's so much desperation for these quarterbacks 
that they just lead to these bad like, decision making. If you're and, drafting a quarterback, you're you, probably reaching. Like nine times out of ten, yeah. you're reaching. Because you go back over time and you think of like all these guys that were the top pick. What, what was it? Carson Wentz the top pick? And uh, him and Goff he, were in that same. He and Goff were in that same yeah. class. Mariota. Are you? Mariota. You know, yeah, I mean, a lot of hype there. I mean, they're every Jameis Winston. Jameis Winston. Yeah. Here, this massive amount of hype, Baker Mayfield. I mean, maybe he's also when I when I say that teams reach, like you might hear that and be like, "Oh no, that's where they had the guy projected going." You're reaching. I'm sorry, drafting Bryce Young over Jalen Carter in the season that he's having, the level that he's able to perform at right now. I mean, every year there's like a surefire kind of future Pro Bowler behind a quarterback who ends up not being your starter or not being a pro bowler who's drafted as if he's going to be and paid as if he's going to be a pro bowler. And so it's, you think about Sam Darnold, you think you mentioned Jameis Winston. I mean, that's a reach to me drafting a guy that doesn't pan out over a guy who's going to be a perennial pro bowler and has like a 90% chance of being that it's, it's a reach. And, and I would say, I bet you retroactively, if you graded out these drafts, those top 10 pick quarterbacks, probably, probably at least 75% of them aren't graded out as a top 10 player, probably more like 90%. And you just, you just wonder if the bias, when you, when you get through the bias and you think about the opportunity costs of what, what might've been in terms of offensive and defensive linemen and trying to draft that franchise quarterback or that mid first round quarterback. Look, look, Doug, I mean, I got no idea. CJ Stroud looks very real, but you know, if Will Levis became the best quarterback out of take Stroud out of it, if Will Levis ended up being the best quarterback, I know we've had some fun with him because of the banana and the mayonnaise that it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me at all that this stuff is just so hit or miss at this point that there's probably a better strategy. Would it not surprise you if some kid drafted in the fifth round ended up being the second best out of this class? It seems like that happens half the time. Brock Purdy, right? Not at all. Yeah. Tom Brady, yeah. right? Yeah. The, and the reality is you almost wonder if there's a numbers game in all this and is the sweet spot you draft three fourth-round quarterbacks and you never try and you draft a fourth round quarterback every year and you never draft a quarterback in the top 10. I think that the Packers are the closest we've seen to that. Not fourth round guys, but maybe late first round. Jordan Love. I don't know when Aaron Rodgers was picked, but they had Brett Favre on the roster. Their draft and the, the Patriots did that for a while. While Manning was, I mean, while uh, Brady was on the roster, they were drafting Garoppolo. They were draft. They always had a guy. Hoyer, they, they were always bringing in quarterbacks they thought had potential and, and maybe even trade value. Shoot, the Packers did it with Matt Flynn during the Aaron Rodgers reign and ended up trading him away for a hefty value. And so I, I think that's a strategy we've seen and, and has worked relatively well for those teams. Of course, Patriots never did find their successor to Tom Brady, although you could argue that Garoppolo was that guy and they traded him. I, I guess the time will tell with the Packers, uh, with Jordan Love, that that whole strategy beyond Aaron Rodgers. I, I still didn't love that one, but it's we've seen a version of that strategy. But we've also seen a lot of teams tank year after year after year, and at least fifty percent of the time take a quarterback in the first round. 
see what happens. I wouldn't be shocked to see the Cardinals do that. I want you couldn't you see the Cardinals going from Kyler Murray to Caleb Williams? Oh, I think it's just about time that you're going to see them move on from him. I, yeah. I, I think that's almost look, Doug. I mean, but couldn't you see get, them going from like Kyler Murray to another Kyler Murray? Kyler Murray yeah. 2.0. That's uh, and, it's Arizona. and, and then, the bias he's built into this. It's the Arizona <laughs> Cardinals. Uh, Tyler Tyler Bajan versus Justin Fields. I mean, if you're a Bears fan, don't you look at it this at this point and kind of go, I don't know who's going to win more games for us if they start for us next year. That you truly it's also have no- like Zappy in New England against Mac Jones. Mac Jones kind of heralded as the next Tom Brady at one point, and of course Zappy maybe making some bad decisions late <laughs> this week. But nonetheless, it seems like really if you take draft, if, if you view the draft position as a sunk cost, it seems almost neck and neck with guys like Zappy and Mac Jones or the whole situation in Chicago. And again, that's what I'm saying. This, these top top 10 pick quarterbacks are typically a reach and, well, yeah, you're dog. lucky if you have. I, I have some friends. I, I have a friend that's a Chargers fan, and that's a pretty long suffering. The the couple of Chargers fans that there are, they're a long suffering group. They always feel like they should be better than they are. But I always look at it like, dude, you got one of the guys that actually pinned out at quarterback. Yeah, the, the rest is easy. Like you just got to have good coaching and a couple good acquisitions and and build around that. But for the teams that are stuck in a cycle of drafting first round quarterbacks and waiting three or four years to see if they can turn the corner and then doing it again and again. That's a, that's a pretty miserable fan experience. Doug, the, the one that should take more heat that they, and they, they don't for a variety of reasons. One, they're winning. And two, they found a guy in the seventh round is the 49ers selection of Trey Lance, Right, because you realize you got to go back to how little data was available on Lance playing in a lower division, and in fact, barely playing. That was in some ways an outrageous pick. My favorite part of that whole thing is that the biggest argument that football fans spent way too much time discussing was whether Trey Lance or Justin Fields was the better option. And felt it felt like that was going to make or break a lot of GMs' careers. And as it turns out, it might have been wrong to draft either of them. Okay, moving on to popular culture. Two stories from popular culture. Okay, they are clearly just working it. The, the, the Kelsey Swift romance, something comes out every week. And I, and I think that's very suspicious. So he flew to our to Buenos Aires and was somehow photographed backstage. Okay, you can say whatever you want to it. The other thing that's come out, and again, this is now totally outside of the realm of sports, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is on life support, Doug. The Marvel's movie has come out, came out, <clears throat> and the number I saw, I've seen two different numbers. One, $110 million on a $250 million production budget. I but I've that. also seen an estimated... 47 million yeah. domestically. <laughs> okay. So again, the life cycle of fandom is, is, is something we don't really talk a lot about of this. The great thing, look, sports, the great thing about the life cycle of a sports fan is it goes on forever, right? When was the first time you wore a Georgia jersey? When did mom put that on you? Probably in the crib, but okay. I'm not talking Georgia about the house. Ones- Georgia what? The hot one. 
<laughs> uh, yeah, it's in the crib. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so, okay. So from age one week mm-hmm. and you're going to be a Georgia fan till the day you die and hopefully the mid to late eighties, we'll give you darn, guys, darn you look right. like you got a life. Okay. I hope so. Yeah. In, in other entertainment categories, it can be a very short window. And so the Marvel cinematic universe was interesting in that they kind of had it rolling for, I don't know, about 10, 15 years. But it seems like they have now, they're driving that into the ground with product that has no appeal to their core. And there's interesting fandom stories here, right? You look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe fandom. They're giving a product that these people don't want. They seem to be giving a product that they think they should want. Mm -hmm. They don't listen to their fans and is it actually something that's even recoverable at this point? I mean, look, fans are very forgiving. Nebraska football fans, they go, they win 10 games one year. They're all back in. Maybe Marvel fans are more resilient. Or are we seeing essentially the death in real time of what has dominated movie box offices for, like I said, 10 to 15 years? If you could have shorted the Marvel brand 10 years ago, I would have gone all in. Because they do these conferences, I guess those kind of fandom conferences. Star Wars, they do the same thing where they get out together and they talk about future projects. And I remember Marvel, they'd gone through Iron Man, gone through Captain America. They'd gone, I mean, all the big. Let me be the fan. Yay, Captain America. Yeah, Iron, Iron Man. Man. And, then it, and then it got where they're like, Ant-Man? And you're like. <laughs> maybe <laughs> yeah like i don't know and then it, and but then it, it just kept getting i remember even dr strange being like who is dr strange like why would i care how is he cool like iron man's cool how is he cool and then it kept getting more obscure until they're it's like are they making up these characters or are these just failed comic books that yeah never recently, got any traction or about six months ago i saw a marvel movie called the eternals i have no idea I, like, not a single are those new are they new characters? And I'm sure there's some fanboys that are like, these guys don't know what they're talking about. And you're right, we don't. Yeah, I don't know anything don't. about. I don't know anything about these guys, and why they earned. Like usually when they make a movie, it's because of it was, and it's an adaptation. It's because it was a successful original, right? Like Lord of the Rings, those books are bestsellers. Let's make a movie. But built-in Iron Man, fandom. Iron Man, huge built-in fandom. They already sell the toys. People already wear the costumes. Let's make a movie. The Eternals, incredibly, incredibly talented actor as well, too, right? With a yeah. ton of appeal. Well, oh, he was he was playing himself. <laughs> he was playing himself, but yeah. And then you get to some of these, and I can't even tell. Like the Marvels, Miss Marvel. I didn't know she was a thing, and I don't know who these other two women are, and I don't know any of the upcoming movies. I don't. I have no familiarity with these characters. They seem irrelevant. It feels like the B sides to albums. It feels like if they were like still releasing Beatles albums, but like, Hey, these are the ones we passed on the first time. Cause they weren't good enough to be on the album, but we want to milk as much money out of that project as we can. So we're releasing it now. That's, well, that's what Marvel's feel, become. Does it, like, does it also feel like, Hey, we know you love these characters. You spent a lot of money. You went to 17 movies to see how this all fit together. Unprecedented, right? Yeah. We're going to stop doing that stuff because, well, we don't actually have any reason why we're going to stop doing that stuff. We just feel like you should go over and watch this stuff. You should watch it's this crazy. stuff. It's crazy. I mean, and it, it's equally complex. And so you have to watch like 
you have to be very invested to know what's going on. Which, by the way, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry to, to go back to this. This is the formula they're using for Star Wars right now. They're, they're looking at, hey, That's- Marvel was a big success. Let's do the same thing. And we're all seeing how it ends at the same time with Marvel. And it's like, okay, this isn't going to end well. Like, they're building toward this mega movie, like, TV mashup with Star Wars where all these character stories intertwine and they all end up. In, it's it's the same thing. It's the Avengers. And Doug, it ends with movies about the Marvels. Like, and Well, does it 47 end with... $47 million in the box products? office on a $200 million budget. Does it end with these properties being sold off from Disney? from disney as disney undergoes a radical reorganization and these end up being sell sold off to companies that are interested in making content kind of the fanboy creators that want to make content for the other fanboys and i use those words intentionally i hope that's what happens (laughs) that would be fantastic shoot i would be glad if apple i would be glad if netflix i would be glad like in pretty much anyone else's hands but disney for a franchise like star wars based on how it's been handled and the trajectory that they're on and the fact that it seems like this uh, this whole thing with marvel and and they're kind of crumbling it's it's not like it's an accident i mean it was it was mapped out 10 years ago this is what we're going to do we're going to introduce all these characters and all these stories and we expect them to perform at the same level of the characters that you love and are invested in. And that's what we're going to do for a decade. I know, I know this isn't your strategy, but why was there no one in the room that would say, why? Right? Why would they perform was, at the they same level? Got, got outvoted. But yeah, there, there's, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a pretty simple like fandom <laughs> uh example that people aren't you had this old quote that I, I made into a social media like short saying that nobody owes fandom to anyone for anything like i don't owe it to watch nhl games or to pull for a WNBA team or to like i don't owe it to you i don't and i'm not a bad person or i'm not selfish or whatever if i don't do that like that's my valuable time you've got to create something that's interesting to me you've got to create something that's valuable to me that's you know, that I'm willing to not only show out dollars for, but spend time investing in Marvel. Like I said, you've got to watch all kinds of stuff. Star Wars nowadays, it's like, well, you got to go back and watch this animated kids show. And then you got to watch this other animated show. Then if you watched all nine movies and then the like four other movies or whatever they've made and read this comic and and read this post on Reddit, and then you're ready to go and, and you'll understand what's going on. It's a lot of investment for fans. And so there's the, the question is, why do they owe it to you to do all that? And they don't. The answer to that is no. And the question is like, okay, what value would that bring them? Would that would that satisfy them? Would that bring them something that and, and to me with Marvel at the end of the day, when you do all that work and then your final product is being able to understand these uninteresting characters doing a lesser version of what the interesting characters did. And it's like, yeah, I give up. I'm not gonna keep spending my time and money on this. Yeah. I mean, I, I suspect that the only real, real answer, and I don't actually even think this would work at this point, is just the reboot, right? That And, and look, I don't yeah. actually know where you go with Star Wars. They've created that. They've turned all of that into such a complete mess. I almost wonder if, and again, you, you, you're, you watch a lot of movies, Doug, so I'll, I'll just bounce this off you. The old model used to be, well, we do three Batman movies or three Spider-Man movies. We go away for five to 10 years, and then we launch it again, right? 
I think it's worked for Spider-Man. I think it's worked for Batman. Does that work, though, when you've got 17 or 18 Marvel movies already out there that all were tied in together and you've be- built this these layers of complexity? I don't know that you can throw that like, Way. can they go back and tell the Iron Man origin story with a different actor? And it's tough. I don't think you can. Yeah, it's yeah. tough. So then it's like, well, they've made the canon and they've made it all somewhat permanent. So now they've got to find other characters that people find interesting. And all anyone cares about is Iron Man, Spider-Man, Captain America. Yeah, it's just a small handful of, of interesting guys there. And with Star Wars, the Skywalker family. Outside of that, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of interest in the general public. Okay, I think this is a good point to wrap up. So as always, thanks for listening. Online Home is fandomanalytics.com. Thank you.